Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Titus and chapter number two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. You could take that Bible and turn to page 168, and you would be at Titus 2. Probably a little known fact that the Italian word for influence is the word influenza. And we have taken a term and chosen a term, influenza, to describe a contagious virus. It's really a word that literally means influence. And as humans, we are contagious as a people. We tend to influence one another. And our example can spread to other people like the flu. As I said last week, one of the easiest things to do in the Christian life is to forget that people are watching us, to forget that how we live influences other people. And the reality is we're all being watched. Yes, children are watching us, and teens are watching us, and neighbors are watching, and schoolmates are watching, and coworkers are watching, and friends are watching. The world is watching to check us out. They want to see, do you really believe what you believe? Does your relationship with Jesus Christ really make a difference? They're thinking, don't just talk about Jesus. Show us Jesus in your life. Well, we're involved in a series of messages we have entitled Designer's Fashion, Adorning the Doctrine of God in every respect as we study the book of Titus. And last week, we looked at some principles for godly manhood. And today, we're going to look at some principles for godly womanhood. And we're going to find those principles in Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. And I invite you to follow along as this morning I read those verses. He writes, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Basically, we're going to do two things today. We're going to spend a little time looking at a reminder of the backdrop to this book. It's important when we go in these verses to re remember the backdrop. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the call to godly womanhood that we see in these verses. So let's just remind ourselves of the backdrop of the book of Titus. Just like today, the world in Titus' day at Crete was actively trying to squeeze the believers into the mold of the world. The culture wanted them to copy their customs and their behavior. And at Crete, 
It was an atmosphere of carnality, an atmosphere of immodesty, an atmosphere of vulgarity. I want to remind you that on this island of Crete, there were a large number of soldiers and a large number of sailors, and that meant a lot of partying and a lot of drunkenness. And the culture at Crete was marked by materialism, selling out in the pursuit of money. It was marked by selfism. It's all about me. It was marked by deceitfulness. They would readily bend the truth if it was to their own advantage. And it was a culture that was marked by sensuality and extramarital sexual liaisons were a norm at Crete. Friends with benefits was a reality in the culture of Crete. And not just the men were affected by all of this. In fact, someone suggested that the actress Lindsay Lohan would have been a great poster child for Cretan womanhood because the women at Crete were into getting high. They were into being self-indulgent. They frequently had loose lips, and certainly a party mentality was promoted in that particular culture. So that's just a little bit of a reminder of the culture and the backdrop of the book as we now shift over and look at Paul's call to godly womanhood. And just like we saw with the men last week, uh, he talks to the older women and then talks about the younger women. And we somewhat arbitrarily uh, chose the age division of 40, saying, well, the women who are older women would be those over 40, and those who are younger would be those under 40. Now, it is not gentlemanly to ask a lady to reveal her age. So, if you wish to remain anonymous in this next little section, that's okay. But if you're confident enough and and just you're, you're bold enough, if you're over 40, if you're a female, would you raise your hand? Okay, some of you are incredibly brave. Thank you so much. And then if you are younger... How about some younger than 40 females that we have? If you're under 40, yeah, all right, so we have a number of you. You know, I was chuckling to myself because this last week I was sick with a severe sinus infection and bronchitis, and I was on narcotic cough medicine, and I thought, well, if there's any objections to having the over 40 people put their hands up, you can just blame it on the cough medicine. I didn't know what I was doing when I wrote this sermon all out, but... We do want to talk for a moment about both of these groups. So let's begin, as Paul does, with the older women. Now, I agree with John Benton. He said this, in our Western culture, since the 1950s, a revolution has taken place. Youth dominates. Our society idolizes being young. To be young is to be healthy and active and without responsibilities. It is the time of our lives when we are physically most attractive and all of our choices and possibilities for life are still before us. To be young, the culture would promote, is to be valuable. So it is that in our day, the old and the elderly are often simply tolerated and more and more sidelined from life. And he goes on to write this. He says, what we find in Paul's instructions to Titus is quite different. 
Older folk are people who are prized. They can be the very spiritual treasury of the church. And I think that is true of our culture right now. Very, very true. In fact, the common tendency you see is that if someone wants to learn about something, they tend to consult people who are in the same life stage that they are in. And yet you're thinking, why would you do that? They're in the same mess you are. How about the people who've been through this before, the people who've maybe followed Christ longer, the people who've gained some wisdom and experience? I mean, who better to give you guidance when you're going through a particular life stage? This is really true of our culture right now. I saw it so obviously back in the 90s when Janet and I went to Singapore and we did a family life marriage conference there. And at the time, we were in our latter 40s, and the other couple who went with us was in their latter 60s. And what was fascinating to me is that 90% of the questions, as we team taught all the way through these topics, 90% of the questions that came about marriage went to the couple in their 60s. Because in the culture of Singapore, they just think differently. Basically, I want to talk to the most experienced person. And there's value we need to understand in being older. So he addresses the older women. We see it right there in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be. And he's going to say one thing they're to be, then two things they're not to be, and another thing they are to be. So let's look at what he says about older women. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior. Now, that little phrase is a very interesting one. This is the only time it appears in all of the Bible. Literally, it means temple fitting. Just like the furnishings in the temple were fit for the temple and were appropriate to the temple, he's saying, so older women should be your deportment. I might put it this way. He's saying to the older women, live in a way that is appropriate to being the body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20? He said, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Live in a way that is appropriate to a body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Second thing he says to the older women in verse 3 is older women are not to be malicious gossips. And those two words actually translate one word in the original, and it's the word diabolos. D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S. And you might recognize that word is one of the the titles for Satan. It really means slanderer. He's saying to the older women, you're not to be someone that runs other people down with your words, tears other people down with your words. And of course, he's talking about the concept here of gossip. I have a couple of descriptions of gossip. Here they are. First one says, far more people are run down by gossip than by cars. Really true, isn't it? 
Here's another one. The one who tells the faults of others to you will tell your faults to others at the first opportunity. Part of what he's saying to the older women is, and I like this verse, it's a favorite of mine, Proverbs 18.21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. You see, we have available to us death words and life words, words that tear down, words that build up, words that give grief, words that give grace. And he says, when you're using death words, what you're doing is injecting something negative that will undermine a relationship. When you're using life words, you're injecting something positive that will strengthen relationships. Older women are not to be malicious gossips. Number three, they are not to be enslaved to much wine. Now, in, in Titus's day there in Crete, the primary substance that someone could abuse would be wine. Today, we have a lot more options than that. But the whole point of this, he's saying to the older women, substance abuse it's not appropriate to a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the fourth thing he says to the older women is they are to be teaching what is good, teaching what is good. And the word good here in the original is the word kalos, K-A-L-O-S. Kalos refers to things that are noble and praiseworthy and spiritually beautiful. And so he says to the older women, you need to teach things that are noble, praiseworthy, and spiritually beautiful. And the idea seems to be this. If you want to develop a habit, the habit I'd like you to develop is the practice of cultivating, and we're going to see this very clearly, teaching the younger women things that are noble and praiseworthy and spiritually beautiful. This is really the transition into a discussion of the younger women. Older women, teach the younger women things that are noble and praiseworthy and spiritually beautiful. Now, just before we transfer over to the younger women, I want to make a couple of observations, three of them actually. Number one, it's interesting to me that Paul does not encourage Titus to personally build into the younger women. We see some wisdom in propriety here because it's almost as if he's saying, Titus, I want you to avoid the temptation of you personally sitting down with the younger women and teaching them. Let's have the older women build into the younger women. Another thing I want you to notice as we get ready to transition into the things that are to be taught to the younger women is just to remember that the strategic value of being a wife and a mother in the culture at Crete and in the culture today is being undermined and hijacked by the society. Part of what was going on then and it's happening today is that marriage was looked at as some sort of second-class existence. And part of what the young women were getting the message of, and, we're, and they're getting it some in our day even, is what you need to do is you need to Pursue more of the indulgent life. I mean, eat, drink, be merry, have everything that you want, be free from the shackles of your husband, be free from the shackles of children. So that's part of what's going on here as he talks to the older women about teaching the younger women. 
And as we begin to look at the younger women, I want you to make one more, I want to make one more final observation. And then as we talk about women here, he's not trying to emphasize that every female has to marry. We learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 17, and also verses 32 to 35, that God gives to some individuals the gift of singleness. And there's an advantage to being single because someone who's single can give 100% of their focus to serving the Lord. When you're married, not true. So just remember that as we go through all of this. But let's begin to transition now. He's talked about the older women. Now he wants to talk about the younger women and the things that the older women are to instruct them about. These are the marks of godliness for young women. So let's look at them. Verse 4, encourage the young women, number one, to love their husbands. Now, literally in the original, it's just the, the phrase, it's a compound word, husband lover. And we have different words for love in the New Testament, and this is the word philos, P-H-I-L-O-S. You know, we, we recognize that word in, the, in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the city of philos. And philos has a certain sense to it. It has the idea of affection and friendship and companionship. Teach the young women to be a husband philos, to have affection and friendship and companionship, to be their husband's ally, to be their husband's friend, to be their husband's cheerleader, to support and affirm him. Now, you young women who are married, I just simply want to point out, you are not called to be the number one critic of your husband, you see. And you can avoid being a high-level critic of your husband by focusing on his strengths rather than focusing on his weaknesses. Now, I know just because we have a a large enough crowd to know, there's some of you ladies who are sitting there thinking, being a husband lover, wait a minute, you don't know about my husband. He is so far off in the weeds. I don't know how I could ever do that. I don't even know what to do with the guys so far off in the weeds. Well, if that's your situation, I have a verse for you. It's Proverbs chapter 21.1. And this can reflect in your prayer life. It says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He, God, turns it wherever he pleases. In other words, God can turn the heart of a king. If that's true, I want you to know that God can turn the heart of a husband. And therefore, what you need to be thinking about is becoming an incredible prayer warrior for your husband. Don't be your husband's top critic. Instead, become the greatest prayer warrior he has in life. Now, I've just got to do this. I've just got to do this because I know how we are as guys. This isn't a side to the men here. If your wife is being a prayer warrior and taking you to the king, and the king is going to begin to talk to you 
I just simply want to encourage you that you better listen when he speaks or else he's going to do something else to get your attention. So please, as your wife prays, be listening to what God wants to say to you. So teach the young women to love their husbands. Number two, to love their children. You say, well, don't all women love their children? Well, I think the idea that he's addressing here is the idea of the attitude towards mothering that the wife would have. And you know, there is a culture clash going on between God and the culture over mothering. It's going on now. It was going on at Crete back in the time of Titus. There's this constant pressure over the issue of mothering. And here's what the culture says. The culture says about mothering, hey, that's a third-tier arena, don't you know? I mean, the first thing that's so important is your own personal life. You've got to work out for yourself. It's all about making yourself happy. The second thing you've got to worry about is your professional life. You know, mothering, that's kind of like third level. But God has a different view of mothering. He says mothering is a top priority. A hand that rocks the cradle rocks the world. And women, through the incredible opportunity and time they can invest in mothering, have a huge impact on how the world turns out. The culture comes along and, and says, well, you know, children, they're really a burden. They're, they're really not that strategic. You want to be about doing something that's strategic. Children are not strategic. You know, God's perspective on it is that children are God's gifts. It's a high calling to be a mom. The world, the culture comes along and says, you know what the goal is that you need to focus on? You need to focus on money and you need to focus on success. You want to be a success, don't you? And God says, no, that's not really the goal. The goal that you need to focus on is on character and godliness. See this clash that's going on? The culture says, demand your rights. You need to stand up for your rights. That's what it's all about, standing up for what you deserve. And God comes along and says, no, it's not about that. It's about being a servant. See the difference? The culture says, it's all about fulfilling yourself. You want to fulfill yourself, then you'll be fulfilled. And God comes along and he says, no, it's all about serving other people. That's how you are fulfilled. So when he talks about loving their children, he's talking about their attitude towards mothering. The third thing, he says, the young women are to be sensible. This is a term that we've seen repeating in our study. It refers to having a sound mind, to have a genuine concern about what God says is important. Someone who is sensible chooses that which is godly over that which is natural or fleshly. Someone who is sensible takes really a heaven's view of things rather than a world's view of things. The older women are to teach the younger women, number four in verse five, to be pure. Just like the implements in the temple belong to the Lord, so you as young women need to view yourselves as belonging to him. By the way, purity is just an out-of-fashion term in our day. When is the last time you ever heard the media 
say anything positive about purity. It just doesn't happen. And purity is even an issue for married women. It's not just for single women, but even for married women. While I was sick this last week, one of the mornings I watched the Today Show. And on the Today Show, they were having a segment on one of the most runaway popular books in the culture right now, especially with women's reading groups. And it showed a couple of these reading groups of seven or eight women who get together and they read the book and they all get together to talk about it. And the name of this book was Fifty Shades of Grey. And the book is actually part of a trilogy of books. And this is incredibly being talked about right now in our culture. And this book, Fifty Shades of Grey, is a novel that is unlike any romance novel that has been out before. In this book, without getting too explicit because I haven't read it or looked at it, but I've understood the basic gist of it, you have an innocent girl who is introduced by her lover into the arena of sex domination and physical violence and pain in sex. What was really interesting is after I saw this little segment, I went onto Amazon.com and looked at the reviews of the book. And there were several hundred reviews there. The, the, the most of them, the vast majority of them, gave the book five stars, which is the highest rating you can give on Amazon. And so I read through these reviews, and I'm going to give you some descriptive terms that people gave of this book. These are not the people who were down on the book. These are descriptive terms from people who gave it five stars, okay? Here's some of the descriptive terms. Intensely dark, raunchy, kinky, completely addicting, deeply disturbing. One person wrote this, one lady wrote this. She said, if you skip the lurid sexual details, you're left with what matters, characters. And I read that and I think, hey, if there weren't lurid sexual details in this book, nobody would be reading it. One woman actually said this. She said, I'd give it 50 stars if I could. It is a wonderful love story. See, purity is still an issue, even for married women. This is a book being pushed and promoted on a mainstream TV show like today that even has children watching it. And what they're saying to the young women is that purity is a priority, married or not. Fifth thing you are to teach the younger women is to be workers at home, workers at home. And that little phrase has been misused and misapplied a lot over the years. The NIV translates it, they should take care of their homes. The New Living Translation says they should be busy at home. Literally, the term is they should be home workers, home workers. Now, I want to just make a statement here about God's view of a woman's ability to rule a household. And I want you to know that God places an extremely positive perspective on a woman's ability to rule a household. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, in that section, um, Paul tells the younger 
widows, you need to get married, you need to bear children, and you need to keep house. Now, you look at that phrase, and it just sounds so vanilla. You know, keep house. All it is in the original language is the word for house in Greek, which is oikos, O-I-K-O-S, and then the word despotes, we get the word despot from that, D-E-S-P-O-T-E-S, which is really the word for lord and master. He says, I want the young widows to get married, bear children, and be the master of their house, to run that thing, to be the one who is in charge of stuff around the home. Now, God has a high view of women. What's interesting to me is there are some husbands running around who have a very low view. Some of them feel like their wives are inadequate. And frankly, I'm just going to be honest, some husbands treat their, their wife like they were a little kid. I've heard about this for years from various scenarios where, where uh, the wife can't even get a reasonable budget to be able to operate a home and, and to buy clothes and to do things that need to be done. And they're not given freedom to make decisions. You know, it's like, what's with that? I mean, God thinks that women can be masters of the home, and we got husbands going around saying, I don't think they're capable of that. I wonder who's wrong. Hey, husbands, if you have that attitude, I just want you to, that's, that's the epitome of childishness on your part. Let her run your home. By the way, you say, well, where does the problem come in understanding this phrase in verse 5? Well, here's what people have added to it. They would say that women should be, young women are to be workers at home, and then they sort of add the idea of only. You know, like you cannot work outside the home. It can only be workers at home. It doesn't say that. You know, you can go in the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 31, where you have the ideal woman portrayed in Proverbs 31. And we see that the ideal woman is described there as being industrious. She is resourceful. In verse 24, it says that she makes clothes and sells the clothes, that she supplies belts to the tradesmen. In verse 16, it says she researches real estate and buys it and then uses the proceeds from that to plant a vineyard. And what happens is that their husband gives her freedom to function in these ways. Now, how much should a married woman work outside the home? That's something you have to get worked out because every woman is a little bit different. But I do want you to notice this about the Proverbs 31 woman. In verse 28, it says her children don't feel neglected. They rise up and they bless her. And her husband doesn't feel neglected. He also praises her. So different women have different capacities. And it's not saying when you're to be a worker at home that that's the only place that you can function. What it is saying is this, that your home and your marriage and your family is to be a priority. And if work outside the home is undermining those things in some significant way, then there needs to be an evaluation. And likely, there needs to be an adjustment. So each wife, each couple has to carefully pray through all of these issues. Sixth thing, the older women are to teach the younger women, and that is to be kind, verse 5. The New Living Translation says to do good. I think here's part of what's involved in this. You know, at times, being a wife and a mom, that's exhausting. 
I mean, sometimes I look at my wife and I don't know how you do it, how you get it done. And oftentimes for a woman, it feels thankless. And here's what I think he's getting at here. There's this temptation when you're a wife and a mom like that to want to kind of lash out a little bit, you know, to get a little ornery. And he's saying, no, no, instead of being ornery, uh, export some kindness and some goodness. And then in verse 5, we come to the seventh thing that the older women are to teach the younger women. And notice what it says there, being subject to their own husbands. And you go, wow, there's a hot button for you. Talk about the S word, submission. You know, one time I, I had a discussion with a pastor here in town, and he had the honesty to tell me, you know, he said, I don't have the guts to address the submission word, the S word, in my messages. I said, well, how do you get around it? It's in the Bible. And he says, well, here's what I do. He said, I just lump it in with a bunch of other verses and then make sure I skip right over that. Well, that's not really my style. And I want you to know that when we've talked about submission here at Wildwood, at times I've taken a whole message to talk about it, but we don't have time for that today. So I want to give you a very quick summary on the idea of submission in marriage. Here's some misconceptions about it. One misconception is this is some sort of a medieval idea. You know, you got the woman walking multiple steps behind her husband, Picture of a husband lounging around, barking orders, get me this, do this, do that. Uh, that's a misconception on biblical submission. Another misconception is related to mis, um, misconception related to submission is that women are somehow a lesser class to men. They're lesser than men in general. They're second class. We know that's not true. Galatians 3.28 says that we are spiritual equals doesn't mean that women are less than men. In fact, you notice in verse 5, it says, teach them to be subject or to submit to their own husband. Not to all men, but to their own husband. Another misconception is that it is silent passivity in some sort of way, that you just sit there and you don't do anything. But no, no, no. Um, the Bible teaches that a wife is fully free to express her frustrations and her feelings and her ideas. By the way, those of you who are married men, you need to listen when she does that. God has designed the wife to bring strength to the relationship, to help counter the deficiencies of her husband. And husbands, we've got them. Here's what I want you to also know. The practice of submission is a calling for everyone. We're all called to it. James 4.7 says we're all to submit to God. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 15 says, we're all to submit to the governing authorities. Hebrews 13, 17 says, we're all to submit to the church leadership. 1 Peter 2, 18, we're all to submit to our employer. Ephesians 5, 21, we're all to submit to one another. But in marriage, there is this unique situation. What does it really mean to submit to your husband? Well, the idea behind submission in whatever environment it's in is the idea of yielding and deferring to somebody else. The idea for a wife is that she encourages and is supportive of her husband's leadership responsibility in the home. The opposite of submitting is undermining and ridiculing. Now, again, I just have to take a moment to talk to, to some husbands here. Because some husbands, in the name of submission have justified their own selfish behavior 
They have justified treating their wife as inferior. They have justified squelching their spouse. And if you do that as a husband, I want you to remember that 1 Peter 3, 7, that God says that God looks with so much disfavor on that, that he will roadblock your whole prayer life. Now, there's a second thing I want to say to husbands, and that is this. Men, God never calls you to call your wife to submit to you. Never calls you to tell her to line up under you. And if you feel like you want to do that and there's some resistance that you're having, I just want you to know the very first place that you need to check is the mirror. And ask yourself honestly, are you sold out in being a servant to your wife? That's what you're called to do. Do you love your wife the same as Christ loves you? Do you regularly nourish her and cherish her? And you may think you do, but does she feel like you regularly nourish and cherish her? What this is really saying to the young women is be encouraging and supportive of your husband's leadership. And then notice what it says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. The NIV says will not be maligned. Why would the word of God be dishonored and maligned? Because we're all being watched, remember? And the idea is don't just talk about Jesus. Show us in your life. We want to see it. Now, the life response we have today is similar to last week. We have some particular prayer requests for older women, some prayer guides for older women to make daily choices to live in a way that's appropriate to the very temple of the Holy Spirit, to refrain from talk that tears down and broadcasts the weaknesses and struggles of others and to be open to how God can use you to build into younger women. And then for the younger women, some, some prayer guides. For all younger women, no matter your age, to cultivate purity and being wise in what you watch, read, and where you surf and what you say, to consistently make life choices that reflect heaven's values more than the world's. And then if those younger women who are married to keep your relationship with your husband a priority, to rejoice in and treasure the privilege of being a mother, and to ask the Lord for help in honestly evaluating your priorities. How balanced are they between husband, children, home, work, and serving other people? Father, we thank you for our women. And we lift up our older women and we lift up our younger women. Father, I know that we had many people out there Maybe didn't have anyone near them. It doesn't mean they didn't have anybody praying for them. I was praying for a number of, of, of people just as I was up here. We would pray that we can hold up one another because we really need to remember how people are watching and the world is watching. They want to see difference. They want to see the difference that Jesus can make. May we display that in our lives, both young women and older women and all of us so that Jesus Christ gets the glory and the honor. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.